Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Mene Rosen's latest book has been described as Mad Men Meets the Devil Wears Prada, and it explores Helen Gurley Brown's first brazen year as Cosmo editor. While she was the most scandalous woman in 1960s New York, her young PA, Alice, is pushing boundaries of her own. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today Renee talks about what Gurley Brown might have made of the Me Too movement, the legendary brothers who created the Chicago sound, and the thing she loves most about writing. But before we get to Renee, just a reminder that the show notes for this episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Renee's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review so others will find us too. But now, here's Renee. Hello there, Renee, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Look, was there a once upon a time moment when you decided you wanted to write fiction as distinct from any other writing you might have been doing? And if so, what was the catalyst for it? You know, it's weird. I've known that I've wanted to be a writer ever since I was a little girl. Um, And I'm not even sure exactly where this came from because I wanted to be a writer before I was a reader, which is so backwards. Um, And, you know, I was an ad, I was writing ad copy for a long time, but I was always working on a novel and I would get up at four in the morning to, you know, write. Um, And I was always late for work because I would get carried away with, you know, whatever book I was working on. And a lot of drawer novels, lots of books that didn't go anywhere. But um, it's just something I've always known since I was a little girl. It's weird. I have no idea where it com- came from. It is unusual that you'd think about writing almost before you could read. But I'm not surprised because your books read as if you're someone who has had a professional career as a writer, that's for sure. Mm, Thank you. (laughs) So the latest (laughs) one, Park Avenue Summer, has been described as Mad Men Meets the Devil Wears Prada, and it focuses on Helen Gurley Brown's first year as editor of Cosmo, Uh, and it brings New York of the 1960s very much alive. I mean, to someone who actually was old enough is old enough, I hate to admit, to have read (laughs) Sex and the Single Girl first time round. And even in New Zealand, it had an impact. Um, What drew you to Helen and Cosmo as a story? Well, it's interesting. I had been binge-watching Mad Men, um, and I really just sort of fell in love with New York during that time period. And I knew I wanted to set a book in New York and I thought, well, I'll do it during the 60s. And I was searching for another glamorous type of industry to use as a backdrop. And initially, it was I had started working on just a fictional magazine with all fictional characters. And then I was talking to my editor about the book, and it was sort of like a blinding glimpse of the obvious where we were like, oh, my God, Helen Gurley Brown and Cosmo. 
And so that's where that came from. And then we were off and running. That's great because you have made it your um, your thing really to, to have a combination of true life, factual people and fiction, haven't you? Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm sort of backing away from that in the book that I'm working on now, and we can talk about that later maybe. But, but yeah, other than really uh, one book, I've always sort of worked in a fictional character. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Sex and the Single Girl was, was very influential for a whole generation, but Brown herself was not really widely accepted as a feminist at the time. And I wondered how you felt about her by the end of your research. You know, a lot of people did not consider her a feminist. I do. I think that she opened a conversation and a dialogue that no one else was having at that time. I think she really liberated women and had a greater impact on our lives than most of us realize. Um, I don't think she you know, she was limited in her view of men and sex and, you know, how how she sort of embraced all that. And, um, you know, I'm not quite sure she'd understand me too. I, I think she'd be all for women standing up for themselves. Um, but I, just everything that I've read about her, I don't know that she would quite get that, you know, um, for example, when uh, when the whole Anita Hill hearings were going on, she went on record saying, you know, girls, you should be flattered when someone makes an advance at you at the office. You should start worrying when they don't. So I I think she was a bit out of step with, with where we're at now. Sure. But I, but I do think given, you know, the 60s and where she was at, I think she was light years ahead of uh, where a lot of women were. And I think that she sort of led the charge. What do you think that women under the age of 40 would make of her? You know, it's interesting. I've heard from a lot of younger readers and um, they, they're they sort of fascinated because they didn't know, for you know, if they, if they were or are Cosmo readers, they knew a whole different editor. They didn't even know about Helen Gurley Brown. But I think they found her fascinating and gutsy and quirky. Um, you know, she was vulnerable and yet she was really strong. Yeah, she was a she was a complicated woman. She sure was because her relationship with her husband, it's kind of like a subterranean thing there. But it's very much, you know, she presented herself almost as a woman against the world. But it was obvious that she had that huge anchor in her husband, didn't she? Absolutely. I mean, David Brown um, was really the person who suggested write, you know, write a book about being single in the first place. And she wrote Sex and the Single Girl. And then, you know, he was the one that sort of put her up to, I think you should have a magazine and basically convinced Cosmopolitan to take her on, even though, you know, she had no editing experience and no magazine experience. So he was incredibly influential in her life. And even though she was this independent feminist, she really leaned on him and David, despite having, you know, a very, um, uh, you know, successful career as a movie producer, always put her career first. Well, that's interesting. Yes. Yeah. You've concentrated mainly in the mid-century, 20th century in Chicago and New York in your books, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Yes. What drew you to that time period, the mid, the 50s and the 60s in general? Although, of course, your department store story is set in the late 1900s, yeah. the late 
the late 1800s, isn't it? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I really have written in all different periods from, you know, the Gilded Age up to the 60s. But I, I would say, you know, I've done three books, I think, during the, you know, 50s and 60s. And it's a little, um, it's, it's trickier in some ways because people, your readers, many of them were alive during the events that you're talking about, that you're writing about. They know um, the places that you're mentioning. And uh, some of the people, you know, they knew Helen Gurley Brown um, or, you know, they knew some of the other characters. Um, so you have to get it right. Um, but I think there's something, I love the nostalgia of, you know, this newer historical. And, you know, it, it does sort of freak me out a little bit that, you know, novels set in the 50s and 60s are considered historical fiction. <laughs> um, yeah, it makes me feel really old. But um, but I like the nostalgia of that era. Now, you mentioned you were a copywriter. Did you work in an advertising agency yourself? Yeah, I worked in several of them. And, you know, I was literally the cliche with the novel in the desk drawer. And so that obviously would make Mad Men very appealing to you. But did you find some of the attitudes in Mad Men towards women abhorrent? Oh, absolutely. You know, but I even like when I started in advertising, you know, there was no one to go to, you know, if if you're creative director, the art director was chasing you around the desk. There was no one to go to and say, hey, you know, this isn't right. Um, so, you know, even though I, I absolutely thought the behavior of the, you know, was just awful, it was also sadly familiar to me. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was in journalism in the 70s and 80s, and it was very much the same in journalism. Yeah. We talk about it today and say, you know, really, we just had to, it was just par for the course in those years, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And you couldn't go to HR and say, you know, my boss said X, Y, Z to me, you know, because those were just a bunch of men and they didn't care. No, they'd probably say, grow up. If you can't handle the heat, get out of the kitchen. <laughs> exactly, exactly. What's your problem, little girl, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the book that you published before Park Avenue Summer, Windy City Blues, also uh, treats a very tender subject. You have a black musician and a Jewish record company in Chicago's emerging blues scene. And that would even today, I think, still be quite a difficult and controversial topic to tackle. Would you agree with that? Well, you know, it, it's interesting. When I started Windy City Blues, I had no intention of having an interracial love affair or even touching the civil rights mo movement. It just felt too um, too sensitive of a subject, and I wasn't sure that I could do it, uh, do that material justice. And but as I started to write, and the characters took over, I had no idea that Leba and Red were going to fall in love or like I said, that I was going to go near the civil rights movement. But in the 1950s, segregated Chicago, you know, if you if you were a mixed couple, you had to get involved in the civil rights movement. There was, you know, you were fighting for your relationship, for yourselves. Yes, and I guess if you were involved in the music scene too, you would be absolutely drawn into that, that whole, um, you'd have to make decisions and choices whether you wanted to or not. 
Yeah. And that was one thing that really struck me. The deeper I got into the book and the research was that you really could not separate what was happening in society from the music because they were so interconnected. You know, one influenced the other. Mm. Were you deeply into blues when you started them, before you started that book? Surprisingly, no. I... My idea of the blues was like, you know, maybe Stevie Ray Vaughan and Bonnie Raitt and Eric Clapton, but I didn't know the great, you know, I didn't know Muddy Waters music or Holland Wolf or I didn't know any of that. So I had a huge learning curve, but I fell in love with the music, with the stories of the musicians. Um, you know, we, we still listen to a lot of blues now. Um, in fact, we're, we're heading to Nashville to go uh, hear... Um, Here's someone who does a lot of blues music as well as rock and roll. But that that book really did change the way I hear music and the way I see a lot of situations in the world. Sure. Now, it revolves around two legendary brothers, Leonard and Phil Chess, who are real people who were inducted into the Rock Hall of Fame. Um, right. They created that Chicago sound by recording the electrified blues. Yeah. They were they were really uh, you know pretty amazing because here were these two Polish Jewish immigrants who had no musical abilities whatsoever. I mean, they didn't play instruments, they didn't read music, they didn't sing. They knew nothing about the recording industry, and yet they launched this record label that introduced, you know, not only Chicago but the world to this great electric blues sound. And these artists. Yeah, and it comes over in the book that really the thing that perhaps gave them an edge was their Jewish background, their immigrant background, which put them into a position where they could understand and and sympathize with the blacks. Right. Yeah, I actually, I wanted to name the book Blues and Jews. Um, my, my editor wasn't, my, my publisher wasn't really on board with that. But, you know, you really, the, the parallels between um, the Blacks, the musicians, and the Jews were just uncanny to me. Yeah, that that really surprised me when I got into the research of that book. And had people picked up on that before? Because I'm not particularly familiar with this period, right? Yeah, it it was sort of, there was an expression, blacks plus Jews equal blues. And, you know, everybody sort of knew that, you know, the the Jews were, you know, provide the business uh, know-how and the blacks provided the talent. And, you know, they, they both, both groups needed each other because in Chicago, particularly, especially in that time period, you know, no one wanted a Jewish family living next door to them any more than they wanted a black family. These were two isolated groups that sort of came together in this part of town called Maxwell Street, where the only money, the only color that mattered there was green. Yeah, yeah. And I saw in the back notes of the book that you made, you did do a tremendous amount of research. You almost did a kind of... Um, homage to blues and I thought from the reader point of view you must you visited most of rock and roll's monuments in the course of that research was there anywhere that particularly impressed you so that somebody listening and coming to the states might think oh that would be a good place to visit is there anywhere that really did seem to capture that feeling of the time oh definitely um so in Zachary Louisiana we went to Teddy's Duke joint which was just amazing. It, it's really Teddy's house that he just opens up to musicians. Uh, Clarksdale was wonderful. Um, Memphis, 
uh, the Stax Museum, um, the uh, uh, the uh, Sun Studios, the Civil Rights Museum is there uh, in Cleveland, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and here in Chicago, um, definitely Blues Heaven, which was the original. 2021 South Michigan Avenue Chess Records Studios. Um, they still refer to it as Leonard and Phil's offices in there. And it's Willie Dixon's grandson, Keith, is the one who actually gives the tours of that. Um, and it's it's really a worthwhile, you know, if people are in Chicago and in the States, those are the places I would send them. Great. Yes, I saw Willie's um, museum online and it looked pretty pretty good but it's nice to have that endorsement because you can never really quite tell from the website whether it'll be worth going to that's really great yeah um what what would you say that the the chess's secret was i think they just had a gut feeling they were they were businessmen they were entrepreneurs they saw a need in the marketplace no one was producing what were called race records at the time for a black audience and they, they just trusted their gut. Um, you know, Phil was, uh, was really, um, he was the sort of the, the guy that took care of the musicians and Leonard took care of the, uh, more of the business side of it. And I think that, you know, a lot of, uh, things like Cadillac records, for example, only focus on Leonard but Chess Records was the product of both brothers, and I don't think it would have been nearly as successful if they hadn't had each other. And what drew you to that topic? Um, you know, we were thinking, I, I had done several books set in Chicago, you know, one during Prohibition, uh, one during the Gilded Age and the Daily Machine and all the corrupt politics and all, um, and we were thinking, you know, I wanted to do another Chicago book, and we were sort of racking our brains to think of what topic. And my editor said, well, what about the blues? And I said, well, let me go do some research. And that's when I first stumbled upon the chess record story. And I just, I got back to her and I said, oh my God, we've got some good stuff here. So... I think it was Robert McKee, the scriptwriter guru, who says that historical stories need to have resonance with contemporary audiences and I wonder if that um, comes as part of the factor when you're assessing the interest in a story and and what how much resonance do you think these stories have with people today? You know I think he's absolutely right about that but I don't know that that's a conscious uh, part of what goes into deciding what topics I'll work on. Um, for me it's what you know, what really excites me. And, you know, sometimes, almost always, I should say, um, it's either a subject or a character, not so much a time period. So um, I'm either drawn to, um, you know, uh, some sort of place and time um, uh, certain person, like, you know, once I get going, then it was all Helen Gurley Brown. She was just driving that book, or it was the chess brothers and the, the artists in Windy City Blues. Um, so I don't know that I consciously think about how to make, uh, a story, a historical story resonate with 
today's times. Although like in Windy City Blues, it's, you know, even though that was happening in the 50s and early 60s, the the racial tensions, the anti-Semitism, it's, it, it's actually very timely for where we are today, sadly enough. Um, you know, and with, you know, the issues of Me Too and feminism and all, still something we're discussing today, even though, you know, I was writing about it in the 60s, you know, during that time period. Sure. And White Collar Girl, the other one that you've alluded to, it's set in a newspaper in Chicago in the 50s. And there's quite a bit about the notorious Mayor Daly in that one. I wondered, was Mayor Daly the figure that drew your interest or... Uh, it was sort of um, the magazine. Uh, I'm sorry, the newspaper world as a whole. Yeah. I had friends that had worked at the Tribune, and I saw the Tribune just, you know, newspapers across the country just starting to shrink in their coverage, and uh, you know, reverting, uh, going to um, online publications. And so I wanted to sort of capture what had happened in the newspaper world, and um, and then. You know, if you're writing about the Tribune, how could you not write about Daily? Because, and I knew Chicago was corrupt, but I just had no idea. And a lot of the stories in that book just came straight out of the headlines of the day. Yeah, and that also has unfortunately a resonance today in terms of the control of power and how much transparency yeah. there is around that. It's become something in the forefront again, I think. Yeah. Um, so that the, you, you have an instinct for the topical topics, even if you're not thinking that you're doing it deliberately. And I, I think the lesson here is that history repeats itself, you know. <laughs> so it's a cliche, but I think it's true. That's right. Look, moving on from talking about specific books to talking a little about your wider career, you've mentioned that you were copywriting. How did the experiences that you had prior to becoming a full-time writer influence your writing? Um, you know, I think because I was a copywriter and, you know, you never wrote anything in advertising without it being scrutinized and pulled apart and, you know, your best work ended up in the trash and all that. Um, it's made me very, um, open to feedback and, you know, my editors will say, you know, that, you know, um, it's sort of, it's, it's weird for them to have a writer who's so open to revision. It's my favorite part of, of writing. Um, so I think I owe that to, to my copywriting days because I don't take it personally. I will rip a scene apart and put it back together again in another, in another order. Um, and I think that just came from the discipline of writing and realizing that even, even in novels, even in publishing, it's still a business at the end of the day. Yeah. You know, as, as romantic as people like to make it seem, it's like, you know, you're still, you're still a bottom line. It still has to be something that's going to be marketable and is going to resonate and work. Yeah. Yeah. We've already alluded to your very deep research that you do. And I, I saw somewhere that you commented that while a lot of writers use research assistants and allow them to do this work for them, that you prefer to do it yourself. And I just wondered about that process. Could you tell us a little about that process? And I must admit, I can't imagine using people to do your research because it seems to put you too distant to the material that you're trying to really get close to. But tell us why you wouldn't use them yourself. Well, you know, 
I, for me, I kind of go down a rabbit hole. I don't know what I'm going to discover. And if I were to hand my research off to an intern or someone else, they might gloss over something that you know, they think is insignificant. And it might be just a little nugget of something that sparks a whole theme of the book or, you know, something that really triggers another idea or another thought. And I, I really think that for me, I want to, I want to get right in there. Plus it's a, it's a fun part of the process is getting to learn about a new culture or a new, you know, period in time. A new subject. So I can't see me ever wanting to hand that off to someone. Um, I, I just think that I, I've come across too many things that I could see somebody else just completely passing over and glossing over. And for me, it was like the richest part. And it l- just led me down a path um, that proved to be very significant in the book. Yes, yeah. Do you do your research, do you do a lot of research before you actually start writing or do you sort of do write and research at the same time? Each book has been a little bit different. With the Blues book, with Windy City Blues, um, I tried writing before I had done all my research and it was disastrous. So I put the pen down and then went and did all my research. With What the Lady Wants, the Gilded Age book, I researched and wrote at the same time. Um, but, uh, and, you know, usually I need to have enough of a foundation, so I'll do some reading. But for me, whenever I can go and visit a place and see it, touch it, feel it, that's what I want to do. Yeah, yeah. If there was one thing you've done more than any other that's been the secret of your success, what would you say it it was? Rewriting. (laughs) Um, you know, I really think that that's where the story really comes together. You know, I, I will turn in a draft and I think, I think it's pretty tight and I think we're pretty much there. And then as we go through and we revise it and I get some fresh eyes and some feedback, I'm always amazed at how much richer the story becomes and uh, that there's, there's actually themes and, uh, storylines there that I just waiting there that I didn't even realize. So, um, you know, and I, I think that that, that polishing, that going over a scene one more time, um, is what really makes, makes the book that much richer in the end. Yeah. Fantastic. Renee, yes. Turning to you as a reader, because this is the joys of binge reading. I suspect that you've been a, a very, very busy reader your whole life. What do you like to binge read? Um, I love literary fiction. Like I'm looking at my book, uh, my bookshelf right now, like Rebecca Mackay's The Great Believers, I thought was wonderful. Amor Toll's Rules of Civility and A Gentleman in Moscow. Um, I love those. Um, uh, but then I also will, you know, love World War II um, fiction. And I'm looking at like Pam Jenoff's books and Kate Quinn's books. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and, uh, Susan Meisner, the last year of the war, I thought was wonderful. Um, 
and Chanel Clayton uh, next year in Havana and when we left Cuba. And I think she's uh, an author that just keeps getting better and better with each book. Mm, Yes, yeah. Would you categorize your own fiction as literary fiction? Um, I think I fit more so in the historical fiction. I mean, I would love to, you know, that to be, you know, a literary writer and to feel that my my work is up there with, you know, would be considered literary. But um, I also hope that it's accessible to people. And, um, you know, I think, I think it's probably more historical than literary. It's hard to know where the boundaries are really drawn sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. And some people, you know, literary is kind of, there's a, a hard line in the sand of what's literary and what isn't, but I haven't figured out exactly what that is. That's right. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I would think Chanel is um, historical fiction, if, if we're going to use that kind of accessibility thing, because they're very readable. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And you, you must read a ton because. Yes, I do. In fact, it's funny. I mean, I, I really enjoy it, but I, I really have time these days just to read something I mm-hmm. want to read. You know what I mean? There's always a reason for reading it beyond just simple pleasure. So I'll have to take a break for a month and just give myself permission to write, to read. I mean, it's not as if I'm yeah. not wanting to read the books that I read, but it's just that there is a certain prerogative there that they that I have to read them anyway for the podcast. But, you know, I've discovered some really good people. And because I'm trying to write myself, it actually is a wonderful way to learn very quickly yeah, absolutely. how other people are doing it. You know, it's... it's mm, mm, mm. Look, circling around and looking back from the beginning to where we are now, because we're starting to come to the end of our time together. At this stage in your career, if you were doing it all again, what would you change, if anything? You know, I think when I first started, um, I had all these very, very high expectations of, you know, what my first book was going to do. And I think that my career so far has rolled out exactly as it should have for me. Um, so I have nothing that no complaints. Um, there's been hard lessons learned with each book, um, and wonderful experiences with each book. And I just feel really, really grateful that this is what I get to do every day. Um, it it was a dream, as I said in the beginning from when I was a young girl and it's never, you know, let's face it, all of us have more books on our bookshelves than we will ever have a chance to read. And, you know, anytime someone picks up one of my books, I'm, I'm very appreciative of that. Um, that's never lost on me. Mm-hmm. If there was one of those quotes, hard lessons that you wanted to talk about, what would be the first that came to mind? Um, just that, uh, you know, not, not every book is going to perform the way you think it's going to, or that people are going to see the heart in it or all the hard work that you put into it. Um, yes. And all you can do in that instance, you know, once you've written the book, it's pretty much out of your control and no one knows, you know, how all the stars are going to align or, or not. Um, and I think the lesson there is after you've done the best that you can with a book and you put it out there, 
you just move on to the next one. Like, fortunately for me, I absolutely love writing. That's my favorite part of, of the whole publishing world. Um, and you just, whether a book does great or a book doesn't do so great, you still have to write the next book. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's a really nice place to land because my next question is, what is next for Renee the writer? So uh, right now I am working on a book uh, called The Social Graces. Uh, it's set in uh, the Gilded Age in New York and tells the story of Mrs. Astor and Alva Vanderbilt vying for control of society. That sounds like a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. They were a bit over the top. So you just you work obviously on one book at a time. Have you got any idea what's beyond that or – I, I have a couple ideas, but I'm a little too superstitious to talk about them. Seems like yeah. when I talk about them, something happens and they don't, it ends up killing the idea somehow. <laughs> <laughs> so that one will be out next year, will it? Uh, 2021. Oh, 2021. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So we've got a little ways to go yet. You do a lot of public appearances, I can see from looking online. And I see that you also meet with book clubs through something called Novel Network, which is a free service. Right. online that connects you with book clubs. I'm suspecting that it probably only operates in the U.S., does it? Um, you know what? I I can definitely, you know, Skype with book clubs, you know, outside the U.S. So if and- anyone's interested, they can always reach me. You can reach me through a novel network um, or direct through my website, which is ReneeRosen.com. That's fantastic. And you, you obviously enjoy interacting with your readers because you do quite a lot of it, don't you? I do. I do. I really enjoy that because, you know, writing is very isolating. So whenever you have a chance to connect with book lovers and, and fellow, you know, readers and all, it, it's really nice. It's fantastic. Are you on social media? I am. So I'm on Facebook, uh, Renee Rosen Author, and Twitter. You can find me, Renee Rosen One. Trying to get the hang of Instagram. It's a little challenging for me, but I'm, I'm over there as well. And Goodreads, and Goodreads also. Oh, right. That's great. Well, that's wonderful, Renee. Thank you so much. It's been fun talking to you. It really has. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Jenny. I've enjoyed it too. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone, as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. 
I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.